Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with me, man, this is a treat. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. Uh, with me is James Rosen. He's a chief White House correspondent for Newsmax. But we're not talking politics today. We're talking about something that's a hell of a lot of fun, and that's the Beatles. So stick around for this important commercial message wherever fine podcasts are sold. And when we come back, we'll be talking about the greatest rock and roll band of all time. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we are back. It is Just Asked the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. And with me, as I promised, is White House Chief White House Correspondent for Newsmax, James Rosen. Uh, James, great having you, man. Oh, it's an honor to be with you, Brian. We have a lot in common, I think. <laughs> yes, this is going to be fun. So we're, we're going to talk about the Beatles. And um, I and I have talked about, with other people of doing this. James Fugel, uh, John Fugelsang, uh, one of the guys who also is a big Beatle fan, has met uh, members of the Fab Four. Uh, I have met, the only one I confess I ever met and interviewed was Pete Best. And That's I, cool. yeah, I, I've got a picture of me and him together as we were doing an interview in Fairfax at a club he was at. And How he long was, ago? This is maybe 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. Um, interesting fellow, you know, he produced a, uh, an, an album called best of the Beatles, which people, uh, fell for, but he was the only one on it, but, and he was interesting about, about what he talked about, about them, but I wanted to, you've interviewed Paul Ringo, George Martin, Cynthia Lennon. Uh, but before we get to that, what, what brought you to liking the Beatles? What was it about them that, that attracted you to them as artists? So first of all, thanks for having me, Brian. It's an honor to be with you. You have a career of great stature in your own right, and it's fun to be with you just on a number of bases. Um, I was born in 68, so I'm what they call a second-generation fan. Um, and I got into the band through my brother, my older brother, who's five years older than me, and my brother, Eric Rosen. Uh, and he had a collection of albums in his room that I would paw through and they were alphabetically arranged. So Beatles came up pretty quickly. Then you'd go to Cream and The Doors and ELO. <laughs> and um, and uh, he gave me a great musical education. I took it a lot farther than he ever did in the sense of becoming truly obsessed. Uh, by the time I was in uh, high school in the mid 1980s, I was actively collecting bootlegs, uh, making the trek down in the pre-internet era to 
Greenwich Village, uh, where you'd have these stores that sold bootlegs, you know, uh, unauthorized vinyl mostly. Um, by the time I got to college, the CD boom was in full swing. And although I'm too young to having experienced the Beatles firsthand as a first generation fan, I miss the Ed Sullivan show. I miss the excitement of running down to the corner drugstore to buy Sgt. Pepper and so on. Um, to be a fan and an obsessive fan when I came around was probably the golden age of Beatles uh, rarities collecting because for the first time in the late 1980s, you started to see the release, again, unauthorized releases of bootlegs on CD that featured crystal clear uh, quality studio rehearsal sessions, takes one through 10 of a given song. Uh, and there really is no substitute for immersing yourself in the Beatles working methods uh, than, for, than to, than to take in these bootlegs where you're hearing literally a, a song from its germination, maybe as a, as a demo or scratchy demo all the way through take one, two, three, 27 and so on. Yeah. Uh, I collected thousands of these. I have like two to three or 4,000 uh, CDs in my Beatles bootleg collection. And also for the solo periods, um, ultimately I got to see three of the four Beatles perform live, uh, in October, 1992, I spent the last $120 I had in the world. Cause I was unemployed at the time <laughs> to, to attend, now there's a fan. Let's see. Oh yeah. <laughs> to attend the Bob fest at Madison square garden. That was October 16, 1992. It was a tribute concert for Bob Dylan marking his 30th anniversary as a recording artist. And that was a, an all-star show that included johnny cash and stevie wonder and the birds reunited and tom petty and it went on and on uh dylan of course uh but for me the star of that show was george harrison performing that's i, I was there at that concert <laughs> we were both at the same concert that's wild well <laughs> you know if you're of my age your only opportunities to see george harrison perform live in a concert in the united states was either on his 1974 tour when i turned six or I, was, I saw him on that tour in 74. Oh, wow. I was Where? I was 13 and I saw him in New York. Oh wow, Madison Square yeah. Garden. Yeah. So and, um that was I, that was a while. I, I gotta tell you, that was Harrison was a great one to see live. And I've seen I, I've seen three of them. Ringo and his all-star band. I saw down in Texas. I saw uh Paul in, in San Antonio. And uh, I'm I'm a little older than you. I guess I'm first generation because I remember the I do remember the uh when they were on Ed Sullivan. That was when I was turned on to the Beatles was Ed Sullivan. And the first album I ever bought in my life, well, the first three albums I bought ever in my life are right behind me. It was uh, Yellow Submarine, Magical Mystery Tour, and the White Album. I have a numbered edition of the White Album. And those were my, you know, when I was a kid, that was, that was, the Beatles were it, man. That was, and um, I loved just listening to them and, you know, and all the girls would go nuts. And I, I thought, you know, I was cool because I, <laughs> I had Beatles albums and none of the other kids in my neighborhood did. But it was, it, which was where? Pardon? Where was this neighborhood? Louisville, Kentucky. That was, everyone was into Southern rock. Uh, a lot of kids in my neighborhood were, or, or country. Johnny Cash was big. But for me, it was always the Beatles. And I remember the first, big argument i ever had with my dad i went in to get a haircut and back in the 60s you got a buzz cut right that was it and so i i, I said dad i want my haircut like the beatles and he said you, you can't have it and i go why not and he goes 
Well, they only get that because they have that in their contract. And I, and so that shut me up for about a, until I got my next haircut. And then I said, hey, dad, how do I get a contract? <laughs> so he, he relented <laughs> and, and allowed me to get a beetle cut. And so that was 65 or 66. But yeah, I, it, to me, it was um, this, uh, the, the whole was always greater than the sum of the parts. Of course. And I, 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 I mean, now they appreciate Ringo a lot more for his drumming. When I was a kid, you know, there were others that Led Zeppelin, Bonham, uh, The Who, Keith Moon, all of them were looked at as better than than Ringo. And I never got it because he could put together a, a, a song. He was just the driving backbeat to a song. And all of his drum fills fit right in with the song. It was very, to me, a lot different than other rock. And although I, I enjoyed the other parts, the other groups, but it was the Beatles that did that. You know, I had the opportunity once to interview David Crosby at great length, just on the subject of his interactions with the Beatles. My chief interest was his presence at the recording session in February 1967 at Abbey Road Studios, where the Beatles um, uh, put the finishing touches on a day in the life, including the recording of the massive final piano chord. Yeah, he was present for that. But David Crosby said something to me about Ringo Starr, which I didn't entirely agree with. He said that there are flash drummers and there's groove drummers. And Ringo was the ultimate groove drummer. Uh, and to be sure he was, but I also believe that Ringo was capable of extraordinary flashes of brilliance and fury in those fills. Uh, just like, for example, the uh, the triplicate machine gun attack at the end of Please Please Me. Oh, yeah. 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 You know, yeah. That's just one I example. Agree. But the whole song, let's say, of She Said, She Said is filled with incredible fills. Um, so I don't think he's so easily typecast. No, uh, I don't either. I agree uh, with you. I have to correct the host, which they tell you never to do in TV school. No, go ahead. You mentioned that I had interviewed Paul McCartney, which is oh. true. Um, I had interviewed uh, David Crosby, as I mentioned, um, uh, Cynthia Lennon um, and others uh, of relevance. I've never interviewed Ringo Starr, but I did meet him and have a kind ah. of amusing interaction with him. But I did, uh, I've had interactions with Paul and with Ringo and George Martin. I interviewed Paul, though, uh, in 2012. I was allotted 10 minutes by telephone. My great journalist achieve achievement, Brian, is that we spent 26 minutes on the phone. Yeah. And on the recording. God bless you. That's what a good reporter does. Sure, I'll <laughs> take the 10. <laughs> exactly. And then stretch um, it as long was, as you can. <laughs> he was in a vehicle on his way to a sound check in Edmonton, Canada. And halfway wow. through the interview, if you listen to it, you can hear him say to somebody, uh, no, it's okay. Just keep the car, just keep it running. No, it's fine. Go, go ahead, James, continue, which wow. was like high praise, you know. Um, and I've only published about two or three sentences from that interview, uh, uh, mostly in an, a eulogy for Cynthia Lennon that I wrote for National Review when she passed some years ago. Um, you know, I'll just keep dribbling on like this if you don't give no, me No, that's all right. I, I mean, I'm fascinated by that. I, I, I want to tell you one other thing, which is that yeah. in 2005, October 8, 2005, who remembers, um, my wife and I attended the taping of Sirius XM Artist Confidential in Washington, D.C. That was sort of like their VH1 type unplugged yeah. type show for Sirius XM. And Paul was the was the musical guest. And I pulled string after string to get my wife and me in there. There were only 47 chairs in that studio, plus a baby grand and an acoustic. And Paul McCartney literally plucked me out of the audience. He said, for this next number, I could use some volunteers. Anybody feel like volunteering? So I shot up both hands. I was only like 10 feet away from it. 
And he goes, okay, you and you and you and two others from the back. And he brought us up and he sat the other two people down at the piano bench. It turns out they knew how to play piano, which I didn't and don't. Uh, and so impoverished is my musical vocabulary, Brian, that I'm reduced to telling you that Mr. McCartney, Sir Paul, stood me up at the twinkly end of the keys. And he instructed <laughs> the three of us what he wanted us to play. And, you know, when the three of us did it together, for my part, he literally took my hand in his hand like God reaching to David in Michelangelo. <laughs> and put my fingers in his hand and he said, you just have to do this. And it was literally the repetitive pushing of two keys, pressing of two keys in repetition. Ching, 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 ching. That's all I had to do. And he said, do it together now, the three of you. And we did it. And it sort of amounted to like a classical underbed of rolling Rachmaninoff style music. And then he says this, he says, softer, softer. Now to me, the Beatles bootleg collecting freak, when I hear Paul McCartney say to me and these other two strangers, softer. What immediately comes to mind is take one of I Want to Hold Your Hand, which didn't come to even the hardcore. Oh, that's exactly until, right. Until the anthology releases of the mid 1990s, where it starts off with take one and you hear. And then it just breaks down immediately and you hear Paul scream, Ringo, softer, Ringo. softer." OK, it was blowing my mind. So then he straps on his guitar, his acoustic, and he says, OK, now listen, when I start strumming. You're going to instinctively try to keep time with me. Don't do it, because I promise you, you'll lose it. Just keep time with each other. And so he starts strumming, and immediately, involuntarily, I did exactly what he told us not to do, and I started to try to keep time with him. And I lost it within one little cycle. And in times of distress or self-pity, Brian, there's a little voice that comes into James Rosen's head. <laughs> and in my mind, it's like a pith-helmeted, white mustachioed World War I officer from the U.K., <laughs> who said, to, you know, get up, man, dust yourself off. All he bloody asked you to do is ching, ching, and you're farting that up. Do it, focus, man. So I focused on the other two like he told us to do, and the song was How Kind of You from his then new album, uh, Chaos and Creation oh. in the Backyard. And so I have the recording that ultimately played on, um, on Sirius XM, and I have a still photograph from Paul's personal photographer at the time, Bill Bernstein, that shows me backing him up on the piano. Uh, that had to be a thrill. My wife, when I when he said, OK, you, you and you, you know, I had to scooch past the end of the row just to get up to him. My wife, by this point, you know, my relationship with the Beatles changed dramatically when George Harrison died. And after that, I really couldn't handle, and I still can't, the proximity of the Beatles to death. I mean, George and Ringo are oh. in shape and, they're, and so much rests on the continued vitality of these two men in their 80s. But uh, I just, you know, I, I wept for about six months straight after George died. And my wife had seen me weep uncontrollably when to pull over the car to weep when like maybe I'm amazed comes on. So as I scooched past her, she said to me, keep your blank together. You cannot weep on this man. <laughs> <laughs> that would be now, my wife. It was good advice. I regret that I did not say, Sir Paul, may I introduce you to my bride? I oh. really would have done that. And he would have made a big deal out of it. But I just, to keep myself together, I walked up and I shook his hand and I said, union wages, right? And he said, no, you're not going to get paid for this. And everyone chuckled. Then he winked at me and he said, don't get above your station. <laughs> <laughs> he, anyway. was, he was my favorite growing up my as a kid. And then I, I really got into John. And you talk about, there's a, I don't, for people my age, you know, I remember one time seeing, um, 
two uh, movie critics, Siskel and Ebert, talking about the Manchurian Candidate and how it reminded them of the Kennedy assassination. And it brought them to tears because they said for them, that was the moment in their life where they knew that childhood had ended and adulthood began. And in the summer of 1980, I began dating my wife and our song was Woman. At that point in time, Leonard had come out with, you know, uh, Double Fantasy. And I, I have an autographed copy of that, uh, which I, like you, I pulled a lot of strings to get. And I, that was our, that was the album. And I was working at a campus radio station in Columbia, Missouri, KCOU Columbia, Missouri, then on December 8th, 1980. And the, um, I remember the AP wire, you know how the old AP wires used to get alarms. And um, the other guy that was working there at the time, Major Garrett was was working at the, in the newsroom and I I don't know if he was there that day but I remember I was the AP wire went off we all went in to see what it was and it was John Lennon had been shot I immediately called I think it was Roosevelt Hospital in New York where he was taken and was uh, and I put him up live I put their spokesperson up live as we tried to find out what was going on and I spent the rest of that night playing Beatles music when it was determined that he was dead. And to me, I had just seen Siskel and Ebert make this speech at, at, at Jesse Hall in Columbia when they came to the University of Missouri to talk about movies. And it just dawned on me, for me, uh, that was the moment where childhood ended and adulthood began. And it was it, it tore me apart because the Beatles were so integral to me growing up, listening to my father sing, you know, a Michelle or him and my mom holding hands to, I want to hold your hand, you know? And, and so to me, that was, that was, and when then George, when George, you know, remember he, before he died, he was assaulted in his own house yes, and, and managed to defend himself. And I thought, my God, you know, and you talk about David Crosby. I remember there was a huge interview with Crosby, I think it was in a Rolling Stone, but he got pulled over about six months after Lennon got shot and he had a firearm on him. And the police asked him, why do you have a firearm on you? And he looked at him and he said, John Lennon. And I don't think I've ever, ever, that to me was, you know, I just, that was a, a, a crystallized moment in time where, you know, my fandom, you know, I enjoyed their music for a variety of reasons. And then, when he died, it it when John died, that tore me up. And then when George died, it was like, holy crap, you know, you can kill a beetle, but goddamn, they're going to die of old age too. <laughs> that was George was only fifty eight. Fifty eight, and he had cancer. Yeah, and well, I, and that tore mind, me. This brings to mind several things. Uh, since you mentioned Siskel and Ebert, Roger Ebert has also said that um, a hard day's night was a great influence on him, as it yeah. was on David Crosby and so many other people. Who, who took from, uh, if not the Ed Sullivan show, from A Hard Day's Night, the great clue from the heavens as to how to spend the rest of their lives, right? But yeah. Roger, Roger Ebert said that the Beatles in A Hard Day's Night provided, a, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but fairly closely, provided a vision of how to behave in an ossified society. And there was everything about the Beatles, not just the music or the haircuts or the, the clothes, just their actual Attitude. physical 
their physical manner of comportment was different. Everything yes. about them was different, you know? <laughs> um, um, and of course, you know, I have my own memories of learning about John Lennon's death. And uh, years later, as a reporter, I got to interview uh, the police officer who drove him to Roosevelt Hospital mm. and who recognized how mortally wounded he was and was trying to keep him focused by saying to him as he was groaning in the back seat, you know who you are, right? You're John Lennon, right? And he's just got groans out of Lennon, you know, but... Um, where next? There's so much more still to be said. And I, you know, I know that I will well, just ramble at you. No, that's all right. Before we go to the break, there's one thing I wanted to touch on. And that is, do you have a favorite Beatles album? Can you pick a favorite album out? The true Beatles fan. And I consider myself one level above fan as freak. <laughs> all right, Beatle freak. We'll regard, we'll regard the question, the associated questions of who is your favorite Beatle? What's your favorite Beatles song? What's your favorite Beatles album? As heretical and offensive. Uh, you know, as you say, it took all four. Me too, yeah. Right? And now I have a favorite solo Beatle, but I don't regard the contribution of any one Beatle as more than the other Beatles. Um, right. And one of the most disappointing things about John Lennon to me, it goes against the sort of narrative that by the time he died at the age of 40 and with a, with a five-year-old son at that point that he had kind of attained a new level of maturity, which was everything we heard in the, the, the period after his death. He gave an interview to Newsweek magazine in September 1980 to promote Double Fantasy, in which he said, again, I'm paraphrasing, but pretty closely, you can look up this, this interview. Look, it could have been me and Paul and any two other guys, right? Let's be honest. Yes, I so remember sure. that interview. I disagree with and, that. And it still rubs me the wrong way. And it shows he hadn't really achieved the level of maturity uh, ascribed to him. Um, so I don't have a favorite Beatle album or song or 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 Beatle because uh, it's asking which of my children I would rescue from the burning building, right? Thank you, girl, or hey, Jude. It's insane. <laughs> yeah. Let's stop this. I well, did appear last night on um, on the Beatles channel on Sirius XM making my return to the segment My Fab Four, where you have to pick four tracks. I, I first appeared in 2017 when the channel was fairly new, and I chose four Beatles songs at that point, biting my lip due to the inherent madness of the task. And on that occasion, I chose, you know, you want to represent each Beatle with one song. I chose It Won't Be Long for John, which I've considered the quintessential early Beatles song. Um, it is. The, the Live at the Hollywood Bowl version of Things We Said Today, yep. because... The Beatles played their songs pretty much exactly as they were on the record, or maybe a bit faster. But Things We Said Today is the only song of theirs that is dramatically different when performed live from the studio version. Uh, long, Long, Long by George Harrison from the White yeah. Album, an overlooked gem. And then lastly, for Ringo, I didn't want to choose one of the 11 songs where he sang lead. I wanted to showcase his versatility as a drummer. And secretly, Brian, I wanted to extend my total running time on the channel. So I chose I Want You, She's So Heavy, which I think does oh. show him as an extraordinarily versatile drummer. Last night, uh, and it's going to replay a few times, if you go to my Twitter feed, at James Rosen TV, my pinned tweet will show you the replay times uh, on the Beatles channel on SiriusXM. It was a great honor to be invited back. And this time I chose four post-Beatles songs okay. uh, to represent each Beatle, and in each case chose uh, alternate versions. So I did Take Five of Instant Karma, uh, the Paul demo of Must Do Something About It, which he gave to drummer Joe English for the Wings at the Speed of Sound album, and which didn't come to our attention until 2014. Uh, I chose the demo for Blow Away by George Harrison, which sounds a lot like the finished version. And then I chose uh, Ringo uh, performing La Di Da 
from Ringo and the Roundheads live on VH1 Storytellers. I was present at that uh, session and um, and there had my interaction with Ringo Starr in which he gave me a nickname, which effectively makes me a Beatle. And we can perhaps pursue that. <laughs> You're going to go with that. <laughs> and what was the nickname? So I was desperate to get on the final cut of that show, VH1 Storytellers, Ringo Starr. And, you know, I thought if, gosh, if he calls on you, the producers came out before Ringo and they said to, there was a theater in the round setting. He had Joe Walsh with him and the other band members. And the producers said, look, get Ringo telling stories. That's the name of the show, Storyteller, you know? So ask him questions that would get him to tell a story. And I forsook my sort of archival insane question I would ask Ringo if I ever got a shot at him. Uh, and instead made what I thought was a calculated attempt to get into the final cut. The biggest Beatle event prior to the taping of that show in October 1998 in Manhattan had been the death in April of Linda McCartney. Right. So, um, I kept trying to get Ringo's attention by mimicking the sound of George Martin and the other studio engineers uh, on the Beatles rehearsal sessions. Over here, Ringo! Right, You know, like, yeah. over here, Ringo! You know, and like trying to get his attention. Finally, I did it. And he wheels around and he points at me and he says, okay, back here for Mr. Pushy. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and they make you wait for the microphone, right? The microphone, you have to wait. So everyone's chuckling at my expense. So when I got the microphone, I was very young. I wasn't even 30, I don't think. Uh, maybe just freshly 30. I got the microphone and I went like this and I said, Mr. Pushy, everyone, Mr. Pushy, right? And everyone chuckles and Ringo says, give a guy a good line and he'll always run with it. Yeah, that's... <laughs> and so I said, Ringo, in light of recent events, I wonder if you might not share with us a story about Linda McCartney. Now, I thought that would do the trick. And the whole room got very heavy. And he says, oh, well, you know, um, she was great friends with Barbara and me. Barbara Bach was in the front yeah. row. And he said, uh, you know, there's a lot of animals that are alive now that wouldn't have been. And, uh, you know, we miss her a lot. Yeah, you next, you know. And <laughs> as a reporter, as a reporter, someone who asks questions for a living, I learned an important lesson on that occasion. Rather than ask Ringo for a Linda McCartney story, I probably, I might have done better. Maybe not, but I would have increased my odds of doing better had I said to him, please tell us your favorite Linda McCartney story. Yes. And in the end, I did not make it onto the final cut. However, however, to this day, if you go and you get the album that was produced as a result of Ringo VH1 Storytellers called Ringo Star VH1 Storytellers, on the back cover, there's a photo of the band, Ringo and Joe Walsh, Simon Kirk and the others. And the only face visible on that photo on the back cover of that album that doesn't belong to a band member is yours truly, <laughs> Nellig. You've got to, you've got to do it. <laughs> I made my mark. I made my mark. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have a lot more. Stick around. Hey, just ask the question, podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, J-A-T-Q Podcast. That's J-A-T-Q Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we're back. It's just asked a question. We're talking about the Beatles with 
White House correspondent, the chief White House correspondent from Newsmax, James Rosen. And before we went to the break, you were talking about your four. I, I'm going to throw four that I would I would love to see played. Um, if it's four post Beatles, I think Paul is uh, no other baby. I don't want no other baby. I'd love that run, one. devil, run. run off a of run, devil, run. Blow away is by and far and away my favorite from George. Number nine, dream from uh, from John. And I, I don't know why, but I was a teen when it came out. I went to a concert where I saw someone else perform the song, but the no-no song by, by Ringo always tickled me. And I, I could guess it. at that. I have to say, knowing you, as I've come to know you just through our work together in the White House press briefing room, but also seeing you even before I, I returned to the briefing room, there were many years where I wasn't covering the White House regularly, just watching on TV during the Trump era. There's no question in my mind that you're a John guy. Yeah, <laughs> yes, definitely like June. But I loved Paul. And uh, I, you know, I it was um, Paul, it, it was seeing his, remember, you know, how did you find America? We turned left at Greenland, you know, and it was, what do you call that, uh, that hairstyle, author? <laughs> so those things, it, it tied me in, you know, and seeing the, and all the girls in my neighborhood loved Paul. And I picked up a guitar, I'm horrible, on, and I even had a, Hoffner viola bass at one point in time and I play piano and I play guitar but not bass so it was it was Paul a lot growing up so if they were four together I would go helter skelter with uh with Paul and then the medley for for Ringo at the end of uh Abbey Road where he gets his drum solo I just uh -huh. love the doing uh the three different guitar solos yeah. and the drum solo to kick it off kills me it's but one of my favorite George Harrison songs of all time is a Beatle with the feedback on it and everything is off the Yellow Submarine album. It's all too much. Oh, sure. And then Hey Bulldog, which it used to be uh, for John. And that used to be not done at all. Right. And mm -hmm. then um, I think who was it? It was uh, the Goo Goo Dolls or somebody started doing a cover of it. And I thought, ah, well, uh, or Grohl, uh, David Grohl did it. And so. Um, I, I it became more popular and they ruined it because it was a deep cut for me that nobody and both of those are off of yellow submarine and those you know, were my favorite you make, your, you make your journey through the beatles catalog and i can still remember uh when i was in high school and i hadn't yet collected everything where you would see images mm. of a u.s album cover like something new and there were still track titles that were unfamiliar to me and that I wanted to, yes. them, you know, and that the great allure those held and the sort of disappointment that rose over you once you realized you had the complete canon at this point, even the B-sides and the things left off of albums. That's when I made the plunge into bootlegs. And yeah. Me, uh, but for maybe financial reasons, every hardcore Beatles fan would want to make that plunge. And so now I've got this extraordinary collection of, uh, of studio outtakes and concerts and telecasts and scratchy demos that everything you get your hands on legally or otherwise uh and now i've seen uh, a lot of that seep onto the internet yes. but the actual yellow dog label um bootleg that came out with you know the first 10 takes of i want to i saw her standing there let's say in 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 1987 or 88 that to me is still an artifact because not too many of them were created, right? These are things that had a pressing of maybe 5,000 and they serve as a testament 
to the enduring popularity that they're even being made at all, circa 1988, I will tell you the crown jewel in my collection. It I is. Have, um, I got Paul personally to sign at a news conference on Capitol Hill in 2010, where I got to ask him a couple of questions. That was a couple of years before I did my telephone interview. I got him to sign a low-numbered copy of the White Album, the original white label CD that came out in 1988. Oh, yeah, I've got that, too. Okay. So this was number 1,119, signed by Paul. Uh, I have a copy of the Help Album signed by John Lennon that was given to me as a gift, although there's no provenance for it. Um, my crown jewel is I am the owner of an EMI disc acetate recording, okay, with the EMI disc label, of Tomorrow Never Knows, that runs oh. five minutes long when all other versions of the song released or unofficial that you can find as a collector legally or otherwise run only three minutes. And a beautiful trivia uh, point. What was that original title of that song? Mark one. Mark five. But yeah, I think Mark it was. I, I was think Mark something. Mark, is it Mark one? I'll go with, <laughs> we'll go with that. For starters, I don't like its eye. <laughs> you and i are old enough to remember when breaking into a liverpool accent like that was commonly understood what you were doing and the kind of humor that's it was right people look at you like you're strange which you are um <laughs> we all are when we but there's nothing funnier than you and me talking in a liverpudlian accent in the basement of the white house as people are walking back and forth going when did they let the Brits in here? That's <laughs> saying we were better or greater than Christ as a person or God as a thing. But this acetate, now those bootlegs I'm talking about, some of them are pretty rare. I have a butcher cover, okay? I've got a butcher cover. But this EMI disc acetate is the only thing I own that literally came, that wasn't mass produced, even if there are 500 copies. Yeah. This is the only thing of its, it's, the, it's unique. And it comes mm. directly from Abbey Road Studios. Uh, I got it on eBay. Um, my wife was sitting in the car next to me at a red light, had no idea that I was feverishly going to the mat for this thing. And um, and all of the Beatles acetates out there, and what is an acetate? It's a kind of a crude vinyl recording. If you play it too many times, it'll wear out the recording. Right. Um, it's so it's the master from which they, which they dub off all the others. Well, they would. No, I mean, th th if, those it, if, if that was the one they would keep. Otherwise, it would be just an experimental. Back, back in those days, if they wanted to take the day's product right. and go yeah. play it from someone else, they'd have to put it down onto a piece of wax, a cheaper one called an acetate. Acetate. Now, most acetates uh, trace back to the collection of Brian Epstein. Um, this this one, there is no accounting for it, and there's no questioning its authenticity either. Um, and so I'm very proud to have it. Um, uh, there's more have you ever played it? Yeah, so what I did was I had a sound engineer who's a friend of mine uh, borrow it and return it, which he did. And he put together a CD that has four tracks on it. One is a straight playing of the Tomorrow Never Knows acetate with all of its imperfections. Number two is the playing of the acetate with EQ applied to it. Oh, number, nice. Number three, probably the best listening experience, is a playing of the acetate with EQ and de-clicking effects applied to it. And number four, purely for reference purposes, because I got this about 12 years ago, he put the actual released version of Tomorrow Never Knows as it appeared on the most recent remastering, which was 2009 at that point. Um, and since then, this this acetate has not been played anywhere. Wow. Um, yeah. And every once in a while, my friend Chris Carter, who's the host of Breakfast with the Beatles on the Beatles channel on Sirius XM, calls me and says, when am I going to hear this acetate? <laughs> 
never listen. <laughs> you can hear the recording of the acetate, but not the acetate. You don't want to wear it out. <laughs> right. I, and I'm not too eager to play the recording either. Uh, I'm no, getting I, to auctioning it off most likely. That For me, um, the one thing I got that I can't tell you out of my collection, what I like the most, I don't even know what's most valuable. I've just been collecting this stuff since I was a kid, but um, I remember I joined the Beatles fan club. And so I got their Christmas recordings. They sent every year. And then I had one of them, I think it was 68 or 69. Maybe I have two of them. And then the last one they came out with in 70 was a compilation of all of the others together on a record. With and the cool um, progression of their faces in four different rows. Yes. Right? And, and the progression of, you know, you listen to those and there is definitely, you can see Monty Python in it. And you know that they listened to those and that some of their comedy was taken from some of the Beatles. I mean, the influence, it, it, it reinforced to me how influential the Beatles were across a, a variety of, of, of strata in our, yeah. Yeah, in our, in our culture. And it was, it was, you know, hard rock music. It was heavy metal. It was, it, it was, I mean, hell even rap, but I mean, just uh, and then comedy and then in movies as you talk and to me it was it was an attitude that they had and so there are times when I you know you know my kids call me the old fart now because I said they go that was done by the Beatles first that that was a Beatles thing and and they go dad what are you talking about I go, right here this was in you know Abbey Road or right here this was in Hard Day's Night you know the movie and and that those Christmas albums so when I was in college. What I would do, I put together a Christmas show, Christmas with the Beatles every year in college, and I'd play all of them and then and then invite comment on them. And if you haven't heard them, for those who haven't heard them, go listen to them. They're readily available now. And there's, uh, one, other, um, there's one other experience I should probably mention, which is that in 2017, I was invited by someone who uh, was an admirer of my work on Fox News to attend a session. Uh, where his father, who was a renowned composer, uh, classical composer, was going to be finishing a, a Christmas album that he was working on at Abbey Road Studios. Oh. And so my wife and I went, and we brought my wife's cousin and her husband, who are sort of affluent Londoners, uh, to Abbey Road Studios. This was 2017. And we not only got to watch the, the session from the same glass window high atop the floor over Studio Two that George Martin would have been standing in. But we actually, during a break, got to go down on the floor of Studio Two. And that was, you know, I really almost passed out on this walking those those famous stairs down into Studio Two yeah. to the floor. And uh, it was like an outer body experience, an out of body experience, you know. And I've only experienced it one other place on planet Earth. And that was Tiananmen Square when I first went there in 2005 with Condoleezza Rice. Like, to see that giant painting of Mao staring down at this vast square. Yeah. You know, it's like, wow, this really did happen. This wasn't some giant media confection, you know? Uh, so I've been very blessed in a variety of ways as a Beatles fan to interact with some of them, to interview some of them, to, uh, to, um, to visit Abbey Road Studios and really get to pour over every nook and cranny of that studio. <laughs> well, hold that thought. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about well, we'll I'll hold it. I'll surprise you. We'll be right back.
Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we are back. It's just asked the question. I am Brian Karam, your host, and with me is Chief White House Correspondent for Newsmax, James Rosen. And James, again, it's just, I, I mean, talking Beatles is great. It's, to me, it, it, um, it brings, you know, it's amazing how many times I've been in situations where you mention the Beatles and even a stressful situation will become less stressful. <laughs> that, and I, I remember one time in the Gulf War, and this is um, 1991, and there was uh, a whole group of, I was with a, uh, a uh, uh, I'm sorry, a medical group, 41st Combat Support Hospital, and they had, we had passed a big encampment of uh, prisoners of war from, from uh, you know, from, in, from Iraq. And so we're sitting there, and as we pass, we were, me and another guy were just coming, get back, you know, sweet little and, and uh, get back, get back. And there were two of the POWs started singing along with us. And I thought, wow, this is really, really weird. So we, we struck up a conversation with them and they were telling us what they liked about the Beatles and how much, you know, we, you know, and, and one of them tried to affect a, a Paul McCartney uh, accent and another one was doing Ringo. And wow. they were trying to tell us, you know, it, and I, I don't do Paul or, or Ringo nearly as well as you do, but in the John, you know, it was like, as I'm talking to them, they're sitting there and they're, and they're going, what we really like about the Beatles is that we're all about peace. And they start doing the peace sign. And I'm going, this is the most bizarre thing I've ever seen in my life. Well, hands across the water, right? Yeah, that's hands. Of, yeah. Oh, there's a good hands one. Across the desert, maybe. Yeah, that's. Oh, and there's a Paul McCartney song that I always love that. um people don't do much of today and that smile away oh what a great track yeah that's pure rock and roll <laughs> yeah pure pure and and uh spin it on was another one from his later efforts when i was god i had to be a senior in high school when that came out that was um uh, back you to know, the egg a, a very pricey beatles item to own which i don't have um i have a, a recording of it that sort of someone made for me but uh oh, about five years ago um paul released a box set of the Wings tour over Europe from 72, 73. Wow. Because, for example, the first live performance of Maybe I'm Amazed on it. And it yeah. has a live version of Smile Away on it, which is pretty rough and interesting. Uh, I'd love to see. I saw them in 76 in Cincinnati wow. on the Wings over America tour. And then my wife and I, I've seen Paul three three times in concert. You know, if you, if you go to uh, the site Discogs, D-I-S-C-O-G-S dot yeah. I guess it is. You know, there's a lot of these recordings for sale there, and you ought to check out to see if you can't find Wings over Cincinnati. Uh, I will place. try that. Because you can hear me yelling. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my daughter used to watch uh, Donny Osmond on the telly. I, I... She, used to, she was convinced that, you know, he was singing just for her. Yeah. 
<laughs> you know, John and I used to do the same thing. We used to write. You even have his mannerisms down. That's what, what kills me. If you can't see it, the, sort of, you know, uh, the sort of shake of the head. The, and, a bit. Uh, you know, occasionally the uh, sort of middle finger. Oh, when he doesn't uh, like the question. Exactly. <laughs> you know, we used to write very much to our audience, you know, with direct pronouns and, you know, sort of like from me to you. She loves you. I want to hold your hand. Please, please me. <laughs> do you ever see um what was it with uh nick cage and it was um yeah national treasure right where he's no the no the uh one where his uh, wife goes back in time and she's trying and it was um god i can't remember who played her but he was the boyfriend who was singing in a doo-wop band and she says i'm gonna go back and discover the beatles and she gives her she gives nick cage and his band this this uh um Peggy Sue got married. That was the name of it. And and she and she uh, gives um, Nick Cage a copy of I want to hold your hand. I want to hold your yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, this is really good, Peggy Sue, but not not the yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's go wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> doomed, doomed, doomed. So, now you said you had a surprise you wanted to spring on me. Well, here's the surprise for you. Out of it, and, and I'll tell my story after I get one from you. Out of all the interactions you've had with the Beatles, what do you think was was the most profound one that affected you? Well, it would have to be the uh, the interview with Sir Paul, which went 26 minutes, and when I was only allotted 10. And I'll tell you one story about that interview. Um, again, at that time, I was projecting that I was going to write a book uh, about the Beatles. Um, I had collected every interview that, that they had ever done that I could get my hands on and which took up my entire garage. And eventually I sold that collection of printed literature about the Beatles to my alma mater, Northwestern University. And it's called the Beatles Literature Project. And it's um, it's it's cool. there now uh, in, at Deering Library in Evanston. They also have my Watergate papers, my journalism papers. Um, they did not acquire my bootleg collection, which, you know, I told them one Beatles breakup is trauma enough here. <laughs> um, but I was imagining that I would write a, uh, a bar and I may get to it, you know, before I die. You should. I six months rummaging through my own collection in Northwestern. But um, I had in mind that I would write a biography of the Beatles through the prism of a single song, which was going to be a day in the life. And so when I secured this interview with Sir Paul, again, I tried to be disciplined and not just ask anything I ever wanted to ask Paul, but try and uh, harness my questions to the sort of narrative uh, that I kind of envisioned this book would would have. So most of the interview, I would say nine tenths, focuses on various aspects of that song. At that uh, news conference on Capitol Hill two years earlier, uh, I had asked him uh, because you know the song "When I'm 64," which was on Sergeant Pepper, right. was actually one he had written when he was 14 and just had it hanging out in his back pocket yeah. for that song. And I wondered if the middle section of A Day in the Life woke up, fell out of bed, if right. that was similar, something he'd had, because it's similar jazzy piano piece, yes. uh, if he had had it kicking around forever or if that was written closer to the, the time period of Sgt. Pepper. When I asked him that at this news conference on Capitol Hill, um, he goes like this, oh, it was, he's starting to try and recall it. And then he stops. He says, don't ask me about Beatles history. I was too busy living it. Okay. <laughs> right. So I told him uh, to get this interview, I went through an intermediary who was known to us both. And I had prepared over several years time, Brian, 
This is what good reporters do. They wait, they build up strength. I had put together over a year's time a care package of tribute to the king that I thought if I ever had an entree, this would help me secure the interview. And this was a box that included a vinyl 70s bootleg of Chuck Berry studio outtakes, mm. four or five CDs of, of Buddy Holly outtakes. And of course, Buddy Holly is very special to Paul. He bought the Buddy Holly song catalog. Right. Um, and a few other items. And sure enough, he responded, fine, I will do this interview with James Rosen of Fox News at the time. Um, and I said, Paul, I want to I want to start off where we left off at that news conference where I was asking you about the middle section, woke up, fell out of bed. Did you did you write that when you were 14? Like like uh, when I'm 64, or was that closer to? No, it was closer to. And he was very uh, eager for me to understand. And I've seen him make the same point with other interviewers that a day in the life contrary to popular conception and what you'll see reprinted in rolling stone and lots of you know all, uh, histories that are deemed very credible and authoritative contrary to all of that mythology it wasn't a case where john had his part of the song i read the news today oh boy paul had woke up fell out of bed and, and they, they pasted them together together and that's what you get he said john's part was very unfinished and i had to help him finish his part so he paul wrote parts of john's his entire part and um, anyway, we tracked through various parts of the song. And then it got to the point where I asked him about the mad crescendo and mm. the final chord. And he said, well, you know, we went through the we went through the, the the mad crescendo. And he said, you know, you know, what I wanted was for them to begin at zero and then get to 24 bars and to just each of the, the strings, the horns, the you know, all of them, the woodwind instruments, just to to sort of like go their own way and just traverse from zero to 24 and just get there at the right time, but not track with each other during that time. And he said, you know, at a certain point, it wasn't quite working out. You know, the strings are like sheep. They need to be led, James. And he said, uh, George Martin stepped in and he said he didn't blame him for doing it, but he kind of resented it that George Martin said, OK, because it wasn't quite working out. And he, he instructed the 41 piece symphony orchestra assembled for this event to uh 12 bars in start thinking about getting to the top again you know from the bottom to the top and he said he kind of resented it because he was very interested paul in um, avant-garde music he was the only beatles bachelor living in london still at that point and going to all of the extraordinary cultural events in london at that time he was very interested in stockhausen and john cage was a particular favorite of his the minimalist classical a modern composer whose most famous composition is called three colon four four which is three minutes, 44 seconds of complete silence. And as Paul put it to me, you know, it's not as if, you know, halfway through three, four, four, John Cage sort of gives you a little ding to let you know. You're halfway <laughs> through. But anyway, we get to the final chord, that massive, <laughs> gong, right, which goes on for 43 seconds. And it rings. They let it, it ring. Me, it bothers me that on the Beatles channel on Sirius XM, they don't play the full 43 seconds. Like where else? Yeah. We do, you know? To hear it but in any case he said well that was my idea too james and he said he goes i'm just going to do for you what he did for me in the interview and what gave me chills and gives me chills right now telling you okay okay he says you know i'd always been fascinated james really still am really about how you could press a chord on the piano and press that lever down below and it would make it go on for like a minute 43 seconds okay and he, and he just goes like this bang and it hangs on it hangs on, it hangs on, it hangs on. And so, James, really, okay? And <laughs> the significance of this is as follows, okay? And when I heard it, I couldn't believe it. 
when I transcribed the interview myself that night, I couldn't believe it. And telling it to you right now, I can't believe it. What he did was he said, bang, it hangs on, hangs on, hangs on, it hangs on. And, you know, for me, most of us, if we meant to repeat something four times, we would just repeat it four times. Right. Paul being Paul, the musicality, even in 2012, bursting out of him, he couldn't help but vary it a little bit on the fourth iteration, just like it was the ver- the, tr- the the fade out to a mid 60s Beatles record. <laughs> you into my life, you know, like every single day, right? And so he goes, it hangs on, it hangs on, it hangs on. And for me, I'm seeing Paul in his shade costume saying it hangs on (laughs) (laughs) and i'm the sole owner of this and no one else has ever actually heard him do it that's cool as hell well all right i'll give you mine were uh, it was interviewing pete best that when he told me i said what what was special about them about the beatles and and he goes what was special to him when in the early days was the camaraderie the, the, he said, but you looked from the day that he met them, he knew that there was something about John and Paul together and then George. There was something about them that he desperately wanted to be a part of. He said, and he was he used the term, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. He goes, I've never seen anybody. I've never walked into a room. And he goes, and I was mad as hell about him after the, at them after they fired me. But I never walked into a room where I saw that much creativity in one room at one time. And then years later, <laughs> and, and I'll tell you the, the the long version of this story later, but when we're off camera, but I, I had met um, Keith Richards and I'm sitting in a bar. And so I asked, you know, they wrote, <clears throat> I want to be your man for, that was the first hit for the, you know, for the Rolling Stones. And um, I said, what was it about him? And he says, well, we were just a, a blues pub band until we met them. Well, it's because he told them, you know, like, this, oh, you can't hardly understand him. But he said he when he met them and he saw that they were writing tunes and music and to watch them together, he said, I was blown away by, by just the uh, creativity. So from two different, you know, from two different people who were there in the beginning right. and saw it. That to me was an event that I've never, I've never seen or heard, and I've rarely seen people that I, in in context, that impressed me as as much as they say they were impressed by the Beatles. So that that drove, oh, that was me. That's what drove it. Are we on. out of time, or could, do I? No, do I I've got I've got a couple of questions for you, and then trivia. So let's see. Did okay. you see? The, did you see Get Back the the movie? I haven't. Uh, because I if collected so much of the get back sessions, like 20, 30, 40 hours of that. I, stuff. I've got, yeah, myself. But so a lot of it wasn't as revelatory to me as to others. But um, I have to say that the, the the get back sessions are, for me anyway, the most dispiriting of Beatles listening experiences. Because as much as Peter Jackson wanted to put a new gloss on this period, there is no question that it is the dissolution of the band. And there is that famous fight scene between Paul and George, which the Beatles fan is like, oh. produces such cognitive dissonance. Ah, my two daddies are fighting. I can't handle it, you know. And like, um, for me, it's sort, of like, it's sort of like the Nixon tapes. They yeah. rolled on everything <clears throat> when they shouldn't have, and it 
and it it wound up chronicling the dissolution of the entire enterprise. But and that and I agree. But that being said, it also saw something I've never seen ever anywhere else, and it was capturing lightning in a bottle. There is a scene where Paul is sitting in a chair, strumming his guitar. You Do see, get back. Yeah. and 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 it just Eating. comes from nowhere. I, I mean, it's just, it, it, to me, it floored me because I'm watching Ringo and George, I think, walk by sipping their tea over in the corner. John is talking to Yoko, I think. And there's Paul sitting by himself in the middle of the room in this tiny studio with this god awful carpet. And then he's, he's strumming his guitar and he's got his eyes closed and out of him comes a song that we recognize today as Get Back. And but he did it on just, his bass. He was composing it on a bass. It just came to, and I'm going, damn, as, as long, as hard as I, I struggle to write. I, yeah. I appreciate that. As, I as, wish I wish there were an eight-hour documentary about the making of the Help album. Okay. Oh, God, or, yes. You know, or or, or, or Hard Day's Night yeah, or you know. even, you know, uh, or Strawberry Fields. But, um, and then there was the other one you, you had mentioned um, earlier, Buddy Holly. It's, I... Inter when I interviewed Pete Best about uh, the Beatles and I said, you know, who is their biggest influence? Little Richard, of course, um, you know, Chuck Berry, of course, and they Elvis. covered a lot of their tunes. But he said the the one artist they were they weren't big Elvis fans, but they but they were huge Buddy Holly fans. And he said, if you listen to the song Words of Love as recorded, he said, that's the way we played it. When I was there, that's the way they always played it. He said, "There's, you know, sincere, uh, you know, flattery is the sincerest form of, you know, of, 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 yeah." So that was that was what they did there was just the flattery that they gave them by gave Buddy Holly sincere flattery by simply. I have to correct you again. It's the, the idea that they weren't big Elvis fans is inaccurate. They well, I I don't think they were. I, I yeah, they I just didn't cover his songs. Yeah, uh, the way they covered a number of Buddy Holly. Moon of Kentucky, and uh, that's all right, Mama. Uh, but sure, and, neither of which are original Elvis songs for them. No, both and they were Carl Perkins fans too. Yes, yeah, yes. And, and when I say and the Everly they, brothers, the Everly Brothers. Yeah. Oh God. Well. Yeah, Everly Brothers, you can see that in their first hits. Uh, I, I mean, there's just no way around the Everly Brothers' influence. And on Paul, name the song that Paul wrote for the Everly Brothers, and which they recorded in 1983. And here we go with trivia, and it is? On the Wings of a Nightingale. And okay. uh, go check out on YouTube, and you'll find the Paul demo, which is unbelievably great. All right, so my turn for Beatles trivia. Well, let's see. Wait, some of these you're going to know. What was the last song John Lennon played for a paying audience? That's great. Um, I don't know. Come Together? I saw her standing there. Oh, with uh, Elton John. November 28, 1974. Okay. Yes. All right, All right. good. Who is the... Well, I won't go with the original drummer. We've covered that. Uh, Rory Storm, you know. Uh, oh, for what crime was Paul McCartney deported from Germany? Oh, was that the, uh, the lighting of the... Uh of the uh ladies feminine hygiene product yeah artson, <laughs> <It> was, artson <laughs> they, yeah. They, they had tacked it on the wall and lit it on fire those bad boys there was a great movie produced by dick clark uh for which pete best served as the technical consultant um and it aired in on abc tv in 1981 it was called the birth of the beatles 
Yes. And uh, it was a very good examination of those Hamburg years as seen through Pete Best's eyes. I have a sneaking suspicion that the last Beatle left alive will be Pete Best. Be Pete Best. And wouldn't that be fitting in some cosmic sense? Yeah, that's uh, oh, here's here. What did they originally want to name Abbey Road? Everest. Yeah. And they were going to go. And then this breed Z Beatles trivia. Oh, OK, you ready? Yeah. Um. What was the last song on which all four Beatles worked? Well, I would say the end, but, um, or the medley at the, uh, the, that would be. I want you. She's so heavy. Yeah. I want you. That's right. It was from who that. Was the last, who was the last Beatle to show up for a session and do work at Abbey road on a Beatles song? Ringo. George Harrison. I mean, mine. I thought it was Ringo and I mean mine. It was George. Yeah, that's good. Among the uh, well, yeah, I won't go. I won't do that one. Uh, da, 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 uh, <laughs> all these are so easy. I, I'm wondering. I'm starting to wonder who the target audience for this particular segment of our entertainment is at this point. Watching <laughs> yeah. and you and me, and each other. <laughs> you and me, brother. So as we as we finish, let me ask you this: Is there? Uh, you said you had a, a favorite uh, Beatles solo years who would that be that would be paul yeah uh, me too because, um you know john lennon uh didn't really take care it seems to me to after 75 he disappeared for five well, years he disappeared for five years but even the period where he was actively recording he it, he didn't take care it seems to me to select musicians of the highest caliber with whom to record there's no reason why someone like john lennon should have been making music with a band like Elephant's Memory, you know, uh, which he brought on the Mike Douglas show with him to play with Chuck Berry. Um, now, George Harrison always played with uh, the highest caliber of musicians and, and uh, of course, was part of the Traveling Wilburys and so on. You know, you mentioned the other Beatles sort of taking a ho-hum attitude as Paul just starts to strum from conception, get back on the bass in that, that film documentary, Get Back. Um, you know, in that same documentary, you can see George Harrison trying to play his new composition, All Things Must Pass, for John and Paul, who are like bothered. And they passed. But yeah, you know. that the thing about that, that's the other, I, I'm glad you brought that up. There are elements of six different albums in oh, those yeah. sessions. Oh, and, yeah. I mean, you've got, uh, you've got uh, Another Day is yeah. performed in those sessions. You know, George Harrison was the first person in the world to have his face and his hands pressed up against the glass of the John and Paul dynamic and desperately to want in, you know? Yeah. And they they let him in, but they never quite let him in. They always treated him like a kid brother. And yeah. that's why he was so ready for the Beatles to be done because he had like 60 songs stacked up that he wanted to record. Um, you mentioned uh, Pete Best and who was the other person uh, that you mentioned? Um, who? Oh, Keith, Keith Richards. Richards, yeah. You know, we're commented to you on being struck by the force of the Beatles personality and overall charisma and chemistry together. Derek Taylor, who was their publicist, uh, briefly in 64, 65, I think, and then later when Apple formed, uh, stated that when he first went to see the Beatles, and I think it was in Brighton or somewhere during that 63 tour, um, it was almost like a religious experience for him. And he recognized immediately that he wanted to spend the rest of his life with these people right and uh it, there was a quasi-religious fervor to this the john and paul and those names and just um 
even coming, you know, to sentience, you know, long after the Beatles had broken up, I feel that same tug. I feel deeply, and I know that people are going to watch this are going to be like, you need psychiatric assistance, but well, I feel well. deeply still today. Like if I watch film footage of uh, somebody announce the Beatles and they come live on stage and everyone's screaming and the flashbulbs are popping and you see them plugging in and sort of checking things out with each other and then beginning to play. Yeah. I personally feel deeply the cruelty that there were only four of them and you're not one of them and you never will be. Yeah. You could have been the best looking guy of the 60s, the best looking star. But you weren't the Beatles. All the women or whatever, right? You could have been Warren Beatty. You weren't a Beatle. Yeah, you know? that's, and it's well, to that's this day that I feel the sting of that cruelty that I'm never going to be a beat. <laughs> well, and and the thing you know, I remember the interview where McCartney said, you know, uh, the thing that we had is different from Elvis is there were four of us going through it together, and not one. You know, like Elvis just went through it by himself. Or but the idea, Monroe, for that matter, yeah. yeah the, but you're right, and remembering the '60s as I do, um, growing up in it, it was you know there was the Beatles and then there was everyone else and it's still always you know been that way I mean I I don't care what they say about music today and there's some great stars and great writers and great you know uh musicians but that was culturally uh you know as <laughs> John said it rather crudely he says when he, when we came over here you all had Bermuda shorts and short hair <laughs> and we and we fixed that so that, so the idea it was kind of a, a revolutionary and yeah, the, the industry does not account does not allow for any kind of uh, massive uh, revolutionary kind of uh, cultural force like that anymore. No, or um, the evolution in recording. Remember when they started out? That was at the ba you know, the very, very beginning of rock and roll, or close to the beginning of rock and roll. And then their evolution to where the, when they left. I mean, you you know you you've gone four track, eight track. You've got. Uh, you know, effects, you've got the Phil Spector years, but I mean, it was just ELO created a whole, uh, their whole career was in imitating Sergeant Pepper. I mean, it was... you know, um, I say this about the Beatles. I say this about Muhammad Ali. And I say this about a guy uh, who passed away last year at the age of 80 and another hero of mine named Neil Adams, N-E-A-L, Neil Adams, yeah. who was the greatest comic book artist of all time. But beyond that, I think one of the greatest American artists of all time. And all three were so influential in their respective disciplines that it could be said of all three of them that they revolutionized not only the product you beheld, okay, which for the Beatles was the songs and the music and the albums, the album covers. Um, for Muhammad Ali, that was the action in the ring. Nobody ever moved like Muhammad. No heavyweight ever did what he did, okay? No, and never has. Bill Adams, you know, the, the actual printed comic book you held in your page, in your hands was radically different from everything that preceded him uh, they didn't just revolutionize what you beheld they also behind the scenes revolutionized the processes that brought you to those products if you will. yes so when the beatles started you know they were like agog at the machinery and the guys in white lab coats who would turn the knobs and please be quiet and don't touch anything by the time they ended their recording career together they were running those knobs they were yeah they were introducing new techniques right Muhammad Ali wrested control of professional boxing from the mob. Of course, he invested it in the hands of his crowd, which was the Nation of Islam at the time. Um, and Neil Adams, uh, you know, secured pensions for artists 
got them to stop destroying the original art, which they were doing, uh, and totally revolutionized the economics of the industry as well. So there are these, these figures who come along in different disciplines who not only blow you away with their artistry uh, that you can see, but who are also responsible for utterly revolutionizing what you can't see about how that vision made its way to your eyeballs. Yeah, I and and amen on that. That's a great note to end on. Uh, <laughs> but the Beatles were, and at the end of the day, were just fun. And I still listen to them. I will listen to them over any other artist pretty much any time. And there's you know, the great thing about the Beatles, Brian, was that uh, you know we were a really tight little band. <laughs> Reductio ad absurdum. There you go, Paul. You've got it. That's not bad. <laughs> So listen, man, plug what you want. It's your turn. Plug. Oh, gosh. Uh, you can watch me on Newsmax, where I cover the White House every day. Uh, you can go to my Twitter feed at James Rosen TV, where you'll see all sorts of Beatles on including my review most recently of um, Paul McCartney's latest book, The Coffee Table Book of Photographs, discovered from the early Beatles period called 1964, Eyes of the Storm, which I wrote for National Review. And you're welcome to pick up any of my books, the most recent of which published in March was Scalia. Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986, the first in a two-volume biography of Antonin Scalia. Was he a Beatle fan? No. <laughs> I've asked people specifically about this. and uh, who, who's, uh, Let me ask you that. Who surprised you? Is there anyone that you found out was a Beatles fan and it surprised you that they were? I'll tell you, once I interviewed Chief Justice William Rehnquist, this was like 19, ooh, this was 2001. And uh, I asked him, are you a fan of rock and roll? And the chief justice looked at me with his dry Ichabod Crane demeanor. And he said, <laughs> yeah. when did rock and roll begin? You know, he needs the fact setting, right? To adjudicate. Right. But, uh, 1955 is the commonly accepted date, sir. And there's a pause and nothing's happening. So I say, um, Elvis Presley, Little Richard. There's another pause. And I said, the Beatles. And he says, oh, well, you know, um, there were some uh, 60 songs I rather liked, like uh, Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter, <laughs> uh, and uh, Goodbye Ruby Tuesday. <laughs> so I said, okay, so you're a fan of the British Invasion. And he says, to the extent you could say I'm a fan, yes, I was a fan of the British <laughs> Mine was Jimmy Carter, uh, sitting down and interviewing Jimmy Carter one time, and he knew he knew early Beatles really well. Interesting. And well, I was he, surprised. He blew the mind of uh, Hunter Thompson when he gave the famous Law Day address in 1974 when he's beginning to position himself yeah. in the 76th run by quoting Bob Dylan remarks, which no politician did in 1974. So Carter had a hip side or still does. Yeah, still his, his hips need to be replaced, but he's still got a hip side to him. Hey, now. <laughs> so. Thanks. Still on. Are we still are we still admitting? Is there sound? Hello. Yeah, that's there you go. Well, listen, man, thanks. Uh the name of this podcast is Just Ask the Question. You can catch me uh salon.com every Thursday with a column and wherever TV when they ask me to join them. And then the name of the book is called Free the Press. So thanks for joining us, and we will catch you next time.